alone in a nest looking around saying, well, where's my mother? I, I know I have a mother. I've got to go find her. And so the baby bird sets off on a journey to find his mother. And over the course of this, uh, this journey, the first thing he comes across is, is a dog. And he goes up to the dog and says, are you my mother? And the dog just kind of looks at him and says, of course not. So the baby bird keeps walking along and comes across a, a little kitten. And it looks at the kitten and says, are you my mother? And of course, it's a kitten. It just blinks at him. It doesn't know what to say. And the baby bird keeps going along. Eventually, it comes up to a cow and says, are you my mother? And the cow says, of course, I'm not your mother. I'm a cow. How could I be your mother? And the baby bird's getting a little bit distraught at this point. He, he has this deep sense that he has a mother. He says, I know I have a mother. I am going to find her. And finally, through the course of the, uh, the plot, finally, the bird ends up back in its nest. And then the mother bird flies back. And immediately, as soon as the baby bird sees the mother bird, he says, oh, yeah. You are my mother. Of course you're my mother. I know who you are. You are a bird and you are my mother. And so all is well again in the world. See, he had a, the bird had a sense, a sure sense that he had a mother. There was something of his kind and, and he was going to find whatever creature it was that was his mother. And as he went through the journey and had these, all these other options, none of them felt exactly right, but he was still going to ask and find out, are you my mother? But as soon as he sees the mother bird, then of course he knows, yeah, that's something just like me. That, of course, is my mother. And I think somehow, sometimes this is how uh, the journey to God begins for us. We have some sense of the divine. We want to connect to something on, on a greater level, something above the human level. And so we say, I, I feel like there's a God. I feel like there's something beyond what's just here. And so this sense of the divine puts us on a journey. We set out to go find God. And in the course of our journey to discover the divine, to discover God, we come across a lot of different options. And as we kind of test them out and see, it, it seems like none of them are, are quite right. All of them seem to be lacking something. I mean, perhaps someone gives you a Bible at some point, or, or maybe you had a grandmother who was a Christian. But for all the Bible seemed to teach that person who gave you the Bible, or for all all that Christianity seemed to do for your grandmother, maybe maybe even then it doesn't feel like it quite fits. It feels like you are forcing it. You're looking for that, that moment that the baby bird had when it, it saw its mother and said, oh, of course, that that's my mother. And even, even when you're so close, sometimes it feels like, I feel like the answer is here, but I'm just, something is missing here. I'm not connecting to this. And I think that's the, that's the impasse of human religion. That's about as far as we can get in our, in our pursuit of God. We come to a certain point point. we think, I really need to connect to God. I feel that God is there, but there's something missing here. I, maybe I'm trying to you know, follow rules, and, and it seems like if I do good, then I'll somehow connect to God. But then we find in the course of our life, we just have this mixture of obedience and disobedience, good and bad. And it, it's not feeling like that connection point where you think, yes, this is it. I know this is it. I feel it strongly. So we're at an impasse. We've come as far as we can come. And our question this morning is, how do we get past that impasse of religion? When we're on this journey to discover God and, and so often we just settle, but how do we get past that point of settling and, and living with that insecurity to that point of finality and saying, yes, I know without a doubt that that is true. That is what is true of me. That is God. This is how I've connected to him. How do we get beyond that impasse to true Christian faith? Well, the, the short answer is that God himself must act. 
But as we look at uh, Romans 7, as we continue in our series in Romans this morning, we're going to see that there's a, a crucial move here, that God's crucial act can be seen in two different aspects. The first aspect is kind of seen in relation to the law, or we could think of that in terms of sort of this human religion, the, the impasse of human religion. And then the other side of that is seen in relation to Christ. So we're in Romans chapter 7 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 6. And if you haven't turned there yet, this is a good time to do that. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1117. So how do you get past the, the impasse of human religion, trying to connect to God but not having that connecting point? There's a crucial move here, and it involves, first of all, release from the law. Now, it's, it's easy for us sometimes as, as Christians, people who have sort of become familiar with the story of the Bible, to think of God's law through Moses as sort of the old way and to think of it in kind of negative terms. I mean, after all, that's, uh, that's not exactly what we're, we're about right now. Um, but at the same time, we have to remember that this is God's revelation. This is God's revelation to his people, what it means to live a holy and righteous life. And so rightly, uh, Jews in in Paul's day and Christians too esteemed the law. They held it up as a good thing. And yet, even with that, Paul has been hinting in the past couple chapters that the law is actually part of the problem, or at least it can be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. I mean, Paul has lumped in law with old way. He has lumped in law with the language of the mastery of sin and the reign and rule of death. Now, next week, we're going to look at how he fleshes out that picture a little bit more fully and affirms the goodness of the law. But for now, we've got to stop and see what does this mean for the relation of the Christian to the Old Testament law? Here's the starting point. Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Now, this is a pretty obvious starting point, right? You're not going to expect a dead person to obey the law. So this is, this is the axiom. You, you know this is true. No one's going to argue at this point of the, uh, the argument here. Only living people have to obey the law. But Paul then is going to bring in an everyday life example to show where he's going with it. So look at verses 2 and 3. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So as the first statement was very obvious, you know, only living people have to obey the law, This is a pretty straightforward example, too. When we take marriage vows, we take them how long? Until death do us part, right? We will fulfill our side of the vows. We will fulfill our marital vows to be married to our spouse until death parts us. So Paul is saying that a married woman here, under that marriage law, a married woman can't just marry another person without committing adultery. The the language that that I read here from the NIV is a a little bit misleading because really both sides of of verse 3 are talking about the same thing. So the NIV has has brought in sexual relations, but it's really the idea of being bound to another person. So if she's bound to her one husband, she can't bind herself to another husband. If she does, she has committed adultery. But if her husband dies, she is then free to bind herself to another husband. 
So it's the same action that's being bound to another, but it's totally different terms. And what makes the difference is the death of the husband. Death has changed the reality of that relationship. Before the husband's death, the wife was bound to him. After his death, she is released from him. So this is what that means in terms of uh, the relationship between the Christian and the law of Moses. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So Paul's saying that conversion to Christ means that a person has a totally different relationship to the law. And simply put, the Christian is released from the law. What he's saying is that death has changed this relationship. Death has changed the relationship of, of a person to the law of Moses. Christ himself died, and because of our faith in Jesus, we are connected to him so strongly that we too can be said to have died. We died with Jesus. That's been Paul's argument here in, in chapter 6. And now he's saying, in connection to Jesus, we died to law. So we are no longer bound to law. We are released from the law. Now, when you and I think of released, we, we think in terms of just being totally free, right? Like, I think of released as like kind of unleashing an animal and it can kind of go and, and run off on its own. And we usually think of that as a very positive thing. This is a sense of freedom. They're released. But I had an experience in downtown Chicago once that kind of gives me a little different picture of what it means to be released. Uh, Emily and I were, were walking in, in, in downtown Chicago at night once, and, and they, they have these uh, horse-drawn carriages. They're supposed to be very romantic things. I mean, you've got all the busy cars running up and down the street and people up and down the, the sidewalks, but you can kind of get away and be in this little horse-drawn carriage and, and sort of have your romantic little little trip there. But this particular horse and buggy were not faring so well. The horse was totally freaking out. It started bolting down the middle of this busy road and carrying the horse cart along with it. And this was coming like right at us, so we're kind of moving off to the side and wondering what's going to happen here. Now, the, the driver of the cart ended up doing something, and, and it released the horse from the cart. And you think, well, that's a good thing, but, but the horse just kept going. So the last sight that we saw of that horse was running in, in full Chicago traffic, running to the nearest ac- intersection. So we saw the backside of this horse and then cars coming on the crossway. And we thought, I don't, I don't know, what's, we didn't see what happened. We, we weren't able to follow the news on it, but it was a picture of great danger. So yeah, that hor- horse was released from that bad situation, but it was put into an even worse situation. It went from bad to worse. So this release that we're talking about here can't be quite that same way. We can't be released into a vacuum or it's going from bad to worse, from being released from the law into nothing and then it's even greater danger. So there's there's two things that we really need to pick up on in this first uh, idea of being released from the law. The first is is that clear truth that that the relationship between us and the Old Testament law has fundamentally changed. But the other part of it that we have to pick up is that that change happens in connection to Christ. And really, that, that, that's where the marriage analogy is really helpful. It, it highlights both of those points. So as on, the, on the one hand, as the death of the husband changes the woman's relationship to him, she's no longer bound to him, so the death of the Christian with Christ changes a person's relationship to the Old Testament law. We are released from that law. But we also see the other part of that. In, in the example that Paul gives, the woman is released from her husband and she is bound to another. And the same thing happens to the Christian. We are released from the law and we are bound to Christ. 
And that's where we have to move from the first aspect here, released from the law, very quickly to the second aspect, that we are bound to Christ. I mean, if we are simply released from the law into nothing, totally free, then we're going to end up in a pretty bad situation, actually worse than being bound by the law. We're going to be like that scared horse running in the loop downtown Chicago, imminent danger. So we move from released from the law to secondly then being bound to Christ. This is uh, really the crucial move to get beyond that impasse of human religion. So let's look again at verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we died to the law with Jesus, which means that we are connected to him. In the terms of of the marriage analogy, he is our new husband. We belong to him. He is, or we are his. This new connection also gives us a new purpose. Did you see the the end of verse 4 there? That we might bear fruit for God. But if we're really to appreciate how, how fundamental, how huge and transformative this change is, we've got to understand what it really is like to be bound to the law. So look at verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Now, remember, the law is a good thing. The law is what God has given his people to, to show them what it means to live a holy life. But the law doesn't solve the deep problem of human existence. We are sinners. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. This is who we are apart from Christ. So rather than solving the sin problem, law ends up actually exacerbating the problem. It makes the problem worse because it tells us what we're not supposed to do. And because of who we are by nature and by choice, we want to then do those things. The law excites in us a desire to sin. So... I can say to you something like, please do not look at that wall. And I'm guessing that if you're like me, you probably want to see what would be over on that wall that I'm pointing you to. I told you not to do something, and you guys were pretty good, or not paying attention either way, and you're not looking at that wall. And the point is that we are, we are humans, and so the law is an opportunity for our sinful desires to kind of rear their ugly heads and make us disobey. When there's a chance for obedience and disobedience, our hearts are going to lead us to disobedience more often than not. And the result of that is the opposite of what it should be. Rather than hearing the law and being part of his work, being part of his holiness and striving to attain his righteousness, we work against God and we contribute to the brokenness and pain of the world. And this really highlights that that impasse of human religion. We get to a certain point and then we hit the wall. We think, This isn't a natural fit for us because my heart is telling me to do the opposite of what God is telling me to do. Paul is saying that something has happened, though. A fundamental shift marked by some of the most promising words that Paul ever uses. But now. Verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. When we were bound to the law, our sinful desires heard what the law was saying and instead of following the law, worked toward death and toward further brokenness and pain. 
But conversion to Christ means that we are released from the law and bound to Jesus himself. And what that means in the terms of verse 6 here is that we serve God, not in our own power, we serve God in the power of God's Spirit. The result is that you don't belong to that old way anymore. You now belong to Jesus. And those who belong to Jesus are connected to the power of God himself. If you look back in the Gospels, in in John chapter 14, Jesus told his followers that God would send the advocate, the helper, to guide them, to bring them to a point of obedience so that they would remember Jesus' words and, and be able to follow them. And Paul is reiterating the same truth here. Those who are connected to Jesus serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't the old way that could only produce further brokenness and pain and death. This is now the new way that results in life. So before we were contributing to death, but now by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to bring the true fruit we were meant for. We were uh, designed to be part of God's good work. And now through connection to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is possible. You see, this is the great promise of our passage because our lives are so often this mixture of good and bad, this combining of obedience and disobedience, and it creates this, this discord within ourselves. We, we want to do the right thing, and, and sometimes we find that we do one right thing, but then after that we go and do a wrong thing and do another wrong thing, and we think, what on earth is happening here? Why am I doing these things? But being bound to Christ opens up a new possibility for us. It opens up the possibility of life in the Spirit, a life that obeys God's plan and works for His good. Being connected to Christ is the the best possible thing for us because it directs us to that life. It directs us to the life that we were designed to live. You weren't designed to be an instrument of evil. You weren't designed to contribute to that pain and suffering of the world. And I think if you look at your life and you you feel your own frustration with, with sin and with doing things that you know are destructive, I think you feel that that is not how you are supposed to be. You weren't designed to be that kind of a person. And that's where we ask these questions. Why, why would I have done that? What did I think was going to happen from that? What good could that possibly have brought? But then contrast that frustration with the times when you feel like you were doing exactly what you were designed for. Every now and then we we are charged with a task that feels like it's exactly up our alley. I mean, a lot of times we spend our our lives doing tasks that feel like they're just butting our head against the wall. But every now and then we get something that feels like this is a pleasure for me. This is what I was designed to do. Uh, For me, I think the first uh, big snowfall of the year tends to be this way. I I like being outside. I I love the snow. I, I like getting exercise. I like doing active things. And I like to be able to look back at the end of a job and say, oh, there's some tangible results there. So for me, shoveling is such a great activity. That, you know, I get out there with my snow shovel and the sun's shining down the next day and I'm shoveling away and praising God that I can, I can do something like shoveling. I feel like I could do it every day for the rest of my life. Of course, then three days later, if there's more snow and more snow, I, I kind of tire of it. But, but that first, uh, first attack of the snow is such a, uh, an empowering experience for me. I don't know if you guys have had those experiences, but, but when you're doing what you're really designed to do, then you feel like you are unleashed on that. You feel like you are unstoppable. You are an unstoppable force because this is right up your alley. This is what you were designed for. You were made for this task. The image that comes to my mind is uh, 
huskies pulling a dog sled. Um, if you are not familiar with huskies, you might think that dog sledding is a, is a bad thing for the dogs. You might think that they hate that, and it's kind of a form of, of animal cruelty even. I mean, after all, you're, you're putting a harness on them, you're attaching them to a, a sled, asking them to pull through snow and ice, and it's cold outside, and you think these are, this is probably bad for the dog. But if you've ever seen huskies pulling a dog sled, a totally different picture emerges. The great joy of a husky is to pull a dog sled. They love to run. They love to pull. Putting a husky in harness and and asking it to pull a sled unleashes them to do what they were born to do. Our hometown hosts a a 300-mile dog sled race each year. And and if you go and watch the start of that race, it's such a clear picture of joy. I mean, you look at these dogs, and and at the start, they're being held back, of course, because they have to start at a particular time. And they're just barking happily and and wagging their tails and looking back at the musher, just waiting for the opportunity to go. And when they're finally given the signal and allowed to run, they just take off at full sprint. It's a joy. They're they're released to do what they love to do, released to do what they were designed to do. To me, that's such a a picture, you know, a well-trained dog team with a a loving musher who cares for his dogs and is not going to abuse them. That is such a picture of the joy and the freedom and the energy that are found in serving God in connection to Christ. This is what you were designed to do. You are able to serve, pour your life out in obeying God and following Him because you know that God cares about you. He has what's best in store for you. And when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually do that, this is a beautiful picture of life. Let me ask you this. I want you to really consider what you want from life because this is a very important question. What do you really want from your life? I mean, if you just want to have a sort of a good time and be able to follow what you want to do and, and maybe find some interesting distractions along the way, well, then the, the gospel message is not really a message for you. The gospel makes a lot of very serious demands on your life. Of course, I, I have to put a word of caution in there. If your goal in life is to just sort of float through and do what you want and, and have a good time, then you will invariably, despite your intentions, you will invariably contribute to a world of pain and brokenness and emptiness. And I think I can guarantee you that at the end of your life, you will regret what you have done. But some of us are not satisfied with just floating through without real purpose or real meaning. If you want to live a life that has a lasting impact for good, then the message of Jesus is exactly the message that you are looking for because it is the message that will change your life forever and it will empower you to live the kind of life that you were designed to live. The gospel is the message that those who put all of their faith in Jesus and follow him are so connected to him, so united to Jesus, that whatever was true of them before, they are now bound to Jesus and able to serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, trying to do this stuff, trying to do the Christian faith without connection to Christ, without the power of the Spirit, that is a futile, worthless task. That will only be that butting your head against the wall again and again. But the promise of the gospel is that when you put your whole trust and faith in Jesus, he empowers you by the Holy Spirit and he unleashes you for the life you were made for. Serving God in the power of the Holy Spirit means that you are serving God in God's own power. God's power at work within you to change the world. 
Do not settle for small dreams. Do not settle for small tasks. See that God is at work in the world. See that being a Christian means that you are connected to Christ. You are drawn into the story of what He is doing. So when you hear what God is doing in the world, when you're, when you're finding out from other people what God has done in their life, what God has done in their community, what God has done in their country, what God has done all around the world, that is what you are now a part of. In Christ, you are freed from those demons of trying to just do it on yourself and end up falling flat on your face. You're freed from those demons of that that impasse of human religion where you're just looking for the right thing to fit and you're just spinning your wheels and, and you know that it's not right, but you don't have another choice. See, in Christ, you are freed from that and you are connected to exactly what you are made for. You are unleashed and empowered to be a powerful agent of God's kingdom, the God who is making all things new. You, wavering, imperfect, weak, insecure, faltering, you are empowered by God's Spirit. You are called to follow Christ. Last week we heard two stories of life transformation at the baptism that we had. And that's just the beginning of the story. That's just God's work in the past year or so, God's work in the past couple years. Those stories are just getting started. But if you hear those, if you heard those two people talk, you heard that God is at work. And He's not finished yet. He's only getting started here. God is working and God will not be stopped. He has called you and I to join in His work. And when we do that in connection with Christ, again, not in our own power, but in connection to Christ, when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, it will be an unstoppable force because it's God's own power working in us. There is a whole community of people here desperate for a message of life. And God has entrusted us with the message of life and empowered us to be instruments of life in our community. Now, some of these people are desperate for this message and they don't know it yet. They're not even searching yet. And so we start with fervent prayer every day for people that, that God would move in their hearts, that He would give them a, a hunger for life, and that He would bring people into their lives, ourselves included, who would be able to point the direction toward Christ for them. And then we go out every day with open minds and open hearts, waiting to hear and see what God has given us that day to contribute to this power or to contribute to His work in His power. I think this is the bottom line. You belong to Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus, you are empowered to be part of His great kingdom work. And that means you are able to serve God with confidence because you know without a doubt that God's Spirit empowers you to be a powerful agent for His kingdom. Please pray with me. God, we do not feel powerful. We feel weak. We are so often tempted to just sort of go through the motions and fake it and and pretend that everything is going to be fine. And then we hear that you have called us in Christ. You have released us from that whole idea that we've got to just pretend and do the religion thing for a while. You have released us from that. And you have given us true life, substantial life. You have given us a real mission. And you have given us real power to live out that mission. 
Father, make that true in our lives. Make that true in our church so that your word will go out with power in this community and that we may be able to praise you from our hearts and say, God has done something that never would have been possible. God himself has done it. Praise him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.